the king, you best not miss. Well, I'm a bunch of little crowd laying motherfucker, motherfucker. Welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the party, pal. The mind-bending film and television podcast you didn't know you needed. I am one of your hosts, Michael Shields, here with part of the Welcome to the Party Pal team, film historian, and host of the forthcoming podcast, Sinopolis, Christian Needing. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Looking forward to talking about uh, a violent but uh, deep, <laughs> deep film. It's so violent, and it is so deep, and that's Rollerball. We're going to talk about that uh, in this episode. Real quick, before we get going... I know your podcast, uh, Sinopolis, is about to get off the ground um, early May. Can you tell us real quick what that's about? Uh, I'm sure uh, fans of film, film and television podcasts will want to know about that. Yeah, I'm co-hosting it with Dante Champaglia, who uh, listeners to this podcast have, have heard me speak with before. He's an excellent freelance writer and editor who um, has, has written about film and, and architecture and a lot of other topics uh, over the course of his career. And this new podcast, Cineopolis, is really about movies, but also the places that made those movies. So we're talking uh, down to the level of the rooms, the city, the architecture uh, that informed the characters on screen and uh, how we think and remember those films. And, uh, you know, these are deep dives uh, in, into, the, into the films where there will be a discussion, uh, some episodes between Dante and, and myself about uh, a film or a, or a filmmaker. Uh, other other episodes will be interviews with uh, Dante uh, or myself with uh, other professionals kind of in the film mm. sphere or television writing and uh, even location uh, related sphere. Mm. I got a chance to yeah. talk to a guy who's um, uh, in New Jersey's uh, film film location um, section, where he really helps filmmakers uh, find locations to use in that state, and consequently um, informs the way that we think of New Jersey on film and television. So things awesome. like that. Awesome. And cool. uh, it's going to be uh, coming real soon, uh, as soon as this coming month of May. Amazing. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. But now, let's get into talking about Rollerball, the 1975 science fiction sports film directed and produced by Norman Jewison. It stars James Caan, John Houseman, Maud Adams, John Beck, to name a few. The screenplay was written by William Harrison, adopted, adapted by his own short story, Rollerball Murder, in a corporate-controlled future. An ultra-violent sport known as rollerball represents the world, and one of its most powerful athletes is out to defy those who want him out of the game. This is, like you alluded to earlier, uh, uh, quite a violent film, but there's some deep um, you know, commentary and, and ideas present here that I'm so excited to explore and talk about. Uh, but what's fascinating to me is when you watch this film, um, you you know it commences with uh, you know like about fifteen minutes of of action and and gameplay. They really immerse you right into this uh, this sport, this this futuristic game of rollerball. What a what a unique way to kick things off. I, I thought yeah, and, and it's important because again, this is a game that doesn't exist. So you have to get the viewer immediately 
into the concept of of the game mm-hmm. uh, and, and what its purpose is. Again, it's as I said, it's violent, but it's it the so it's because that violence serves the social commentary that the, that the screenwriter and so yeah, and uh, and original short story writer William Harrison uh, wanted to make about the reason for the existence of this ultra violent game, and so immediately mm-hmm. the audience in that that opening scene as you see these skaters and motorcyclists going around this circular uh venue that these two teams are are hitting and bashing each other and there's this heavy ball that they're that they're uh, catching and trying to score it's it's something that that it gets the audience used to it but also gets the audience a little bit dulled to the uh to the um, energy of the violence that's that's to come. They want to. It's the the director Norma mm. Jewison almost wants to get get it out of the way so that he can get to the real point of the film. And these yeah. these games yep. are kind of strategically placed through, throughout the film um, in in blocks that that kind of so it's you're not inundated, you're not too inured to to the violence. So it's 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 yeah. still it still hits you when it when you see these uh, when you see it and. Uh, each time the the game appears on screen, it's with less and less rules and becomes more and more violent and unhinged because this this reflects what the the organizers of the game are 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 carrying out over the course. Yeah, again for for a reason. There's a reason behind that, and you're right. They the way they separate these games and and how they change all serves the purpose and the idea of uh of you know what what are you trying to say? Because this film is really really trying to say something um i learned a little bit about how uh, you know it kind of came to be um and you know norman he was watching a hockey game in chicago and you know he was thinking a lot about blood sports and just you know i think he, he saw blood on the ice and you know really it, you know it just it, it shook him and it, it, it's funny it, it, we'll get into all the the you know his ideas that are in the film but um this, you know, this this kind of made some waves out there, and and sports, uh, the sports world was paying attention because it was a, a game that was um, conceived fully. They had full rules um, as the rules changed throughout the, uh, the 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 movie, but you know, they had the the number of players was decided. It wasn't nothing was arbitrary. They created the game, and uh, I came upon something where he was contacted by promoters. Um, who were requesting rights to the game. They wanted to create a, a real rollerball league. And it, 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 this idea made him sick But because he, he was trying to say something about um, blood sports and uh, about, about the sickness and, and the insanity of contact sports, which was wild that people were like, ah, I don't know, we yeah, want that. And when you say but he is, is more of a they because it, it really is fully – the game is fully formed in the mind of William Harrison – the screenwriter who, who Jewison yep. was smart enough to essentially defer to by uh, contracting to craft the screenplay from his own short story uh, in quick succession from his its publication. Um, and here's here's the key fact: the name of the short story is Rollerball Murder, while the name of the movie is Rollerball. And really, the point is, it could almost be any contact sport. The key word is murder. That's in the short in the short story, which is the fact that it's the bru- it's the brutality of 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 the sport, 
but it's it's the the purpose is is the killing. And you you alluded to the fact that that Jewison um, had had been inspired to pursue the project after seeing um, a hockey game, and I think that's extremely crucial. Um, Jewison directing this film and the inspiration for it. Jewison is Canadian, and he's probably the greatest living Canadian director. Um, arguably, in terms of mainstream features, for those who are big David Cronenberg fans, I'm sure they would argue that. But I would argue that Jewison um, is even more important because of the mainstream nature of his films. Uh, by the time he mm. came to this project in the in the 70s, he had already directed um, Fiddler on the Roof and In the Heat of the Night and and a couple of other films before yeah, that. Huge and films. Had, was Cincinnati Kid before that? And the Cincinnati Kid, and then yep, uh, and then Queen. his larger filmography, Jesus Christ Superstar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ag- people have seen Agnes of God. I mean, he, his filmography is is best. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And Thomas I, Crown Affair, right? Yeah, yeah. He's he's ba- basic. Uh, you know, it's he it and and on and on. You know, the idea that this guy's the variety of what he could pursue was was what made him very valuable um and Mm. which really he forged this partnership with uh united artists and um who basically which is the way this film got made and that that's an important thing because that means it got seen in wide release by theaters um now i say that the hockey thing is is important because being canadian um the story that that jewison tells and i got a chance to see him tell the story uh, at Lincoln Center, when they did a retrospective of of this film, oh, is cool. the fact is the fact that you know when hockey started out in Canada, it was it was very few teams, but it was it was their sport, and when it expanded into America, the uh, not that it wasn't televised or seen, obviously Hockey Night in Canada is what it was, it became more widely seen, and the context of what of of this incident in Chicago. Uh, this Blackhawks game that he saw where it was the he noted that the cameras um, zoomed in on 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 the blood on the ice and that the the crowd was you know there was an excitement to it and that that disturbed him and yeah. so in very soon after that when he read Harrison's short story that that resonated for him as as this sport grew and became more um, more more popular he noted uh, or in his opinion uh, the brutality was more re- rewarded or encouraged. Yep. And that yep. was something that was disturbing to to his mindset. Um, another thing that he noted was this is the only, of all those films that I noted before, this is the only film that Jewison directed that was about the future. This is about yeah. his view of what society could become. Um, another thing that he, he noted that, that resonated was that Jewison was old enough to remember the farewell speech by um, former president Dwight Day. Dwight D. Eisenhower, mm-hmm. where he calls out, the, which infamously, military. The, the military-industrial complex, and yep. to beware of, of this, and that that's a... I think a, it up but often, yeah. Yeah, the path that, yeah. that, America, that uh, America could follow. But in this case, it's more of larger society. And in this, mm. this view of the future, it's what could happen if corporations take over. Yeah. And, I can't believe it took us this amount of time to even get to the word corporations. I know we had to... Uh, you know, discuss the bloodlust um, origins of the whole thing. But, I mean, this really does lie at the heart of everything. It's just his view of what could occur or what was happening. I mean, this was something that was already kind of steamrolling. And, I mean, this is something that is 
super important, super telling. I mean, there's a crystal ball type thing going on here. I mean, I was just looking at some stats um, just just today, and some of these studies were from just a few years back. But, I mean, of the largest economies in the world, 69 are global corporations. This was in 2016. And 49 are countries, meaning that corporations are having could be looked at as having more impact and more influence in a, in, in a major way, really, than, than, than the countries. The top 200 corporations combined, their sales are bigger than the combined sales of all countries uh, besides the biggest nine. That is that that means they surpass the economies of 182 countries. I mean, Jewison was talking about something that. That I mean is 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 was real is real and it, it possibly is getting to be something uh, of more concern. I mean, it, he was he was saying something that matters. Absolutely, and in this case, uh, with with Harrison, they they create a world in which there have been there's now a post war period that they live in a post corporate mm-hmm. war period yeah. where there's yep. a, a very distinctive class structure, and at the top is the executive class. And these, this executive class um, controls what are known as the six majors, which is energy, transport, food, housing, services, and luxury. And the protagonist of this film, the great Jonathan E., the greatest uh, player on Houston's team, uh, keep the Houston team uh, being run by the energy major, and uh, specifically his boss, Mr. Bartholomew. Yep. He is very much... In, in my view, even this is this is removed from whatever the inspiration is then. The closest in terms of celebrity that I can peg him at is kind of a LeBron James in mm. in the sense that, yeah, that yeah, adheres, but, but only in the celebrity aspect of it. The fact yep. that he has in a sport that is crafted to uh, basically uh, make the team more important than the individual. Jonathan has lived long enough to become a, a celebrity, an ultra celebrity, where he has become a threat almost. And I say, I, I compare him to the LeBron James uh, thing. I think the reason why that jumped to mind is that there are aspects to this film that resonate with me every time I hear people talk about the idea of the, the hash, you know, you'll, you'll hear people, every time an athlete speaks out, they're told to stick to sports. Yeah. Uh, because why should they use the power of their celebrity to make commentary on the change of, of, of the way society works? And I think that's something that definitely uh, resonates there. You know, I've, I've, was, I, went back, I went back and I looked at the, the short story that, that Harrison wrote, which was originally published in Esquire in 73. And it was interesting. There's, there's a, there are a couple of passages that, that, that could easily uh, speak today as, as, as before. And one of them is the introduction of Jonathan E. early, early on. And, and the story is told from his point of view. And he's talking about um, the idea of what his, of the fact that he's been given all the, the women and money that he could ever, ever want by this, by the, the energy major. And he notes that my photo then is now was on the covers of magazines so that my name and the name of the sport were one. And I was yeah. Jonathan E., no other, a survivor and much more in the bloodiest mm. sport. Wow. And that resonates for me because there's something yeah. about the fact that it made to, in that era of the seventies, one could argue who, who were personalities who were synonymous with their sports, Pele, Muhammad Ali, mm. 
these these ideas that these char- these people that transcend it a sport to the point where th- there is almost like a cult of personality in some ways now, that's too negative of, of, of a thing not necessarily cult of personality but but the idea of an idolization of yeah. of the, of the individual over the team and that plays out throughout absolutely the word individual just uh, that's that's where I want to take it because it's a lot of this as the movie's progressing is it's kind of a journey to figure out why the executive committee is afraid of them. And, and, you know, when you really get to it and you find out the reason is because, you know, rollerball was conceived for, for very strategic reasons. And one was to satisfy man's bloodlust, but it was also to demonstrate the futility of individualism. And so what he represented was, was the opposite of that. I mean, his individual, uh, you know, his his talents, his success, his stardom really, you know, was the antithesis of that idea. And, and you know, it showed it was beyond that. And, and you know, so it, it was fun to kind of come to grips with what made him so dangerous. And it was the kind of individualism um, idea. It is wild. And, and you said it perfectly. We kind of, you know, what we see when athletes uh, are told to stand down and, 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 you know, just, you know, dance or just play their game. Um, you know, those, those scenes where he, he's talking to Bartholomew, you know, played so well by John, uh, John Houseman, right. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, he just like corporation, you know, we corporations, we, we take care of everything. We take care of you. And all we ever ask of you is to not interfere with management's decisions. Like we got everything, but just be quiet. And it's just, it really, it does. It's amazing how much it resonates with um, so many sports ideas and themes and concerns. And it just, it's still, it, it just permeates what we see today. And I just, that's, it just, it's, just, it's wild how uh, uh, a film that's, you know, it, it's made in 1975 and probably seemed kind of wild and far-fetched, looked so futuristic. There was times where it even looked like a, Kubrick film and they were in the oh, settings. Yes. Um, yes, very yeah, much so. It, it was filmed and it was filmed in Europe. It was mostly filmed, I believe, uh, in it was milled in Munich and in Zurich. And uh, I got I got very yeah very much uh, Clockwork Orange ish kind of uh, vibe from the ultra modern. Definitely the ultra modern, and then uh, and some of that was the BMW headquarters um, in uh, in in Munich museums uh, over there. But uh, there's even that scene where the uh, computer is producing the television show and talking to him. That definitely reminded me of some uh, uh, Kubrick stuff as well. So there was definitely mm. Kubrick vibes, uh, uh, you know, resonating throughout, which is really, really visually, really, really well done and really cool to look at back in the day. Whether it is them going into these, um, you know, uh, fancy, uh, you know, places where the, the executives are. There's also... Uh, when they go, when he, when he meets the supercomputer Zero, who's who's managed by another uh, English acting great, Ralph Richardson, mm. uh, who can't who notes that the imperfection, the fact that books have been done away with in this world, leaving it all to computers, yeah, huh, that's an, and their their summaries, team. huh, mm-hmm. the idea that they're that he complains the fact that they've recently accidentally lost the entirety of the 13th century, the entirety of the 13th century, <laughs> which, which is, you know, and, and it's, it's a, and it's an annoyance, 
but a relatively minor annoyance. In the <laughs> yeah. thing that, because how many people, unlike, you know, because Jonathan is a rarity now to mm. those who actually come to Zurich to uh, to actually ask the computer things. Uh, Richardson notes that um, the executive class had, pri- had had used to come, but not as much anymore. And so no one, the quest for knowledge is, is less than it was. And this yeah. is, I want to get back to the individual point for a second that you touched sure. on, because this is where the casting comes into effect. So James Can plays, uh, coming off of Sonny Corleone, plays uh, uh, Jonathan E. in this, and he was about 35 at the time. And the, the age, his age is crucial to this, because he's a guy who's about 10 years into his career, but more to the point, is old enough to remember a world with books. And the idea that now, as as he's, um, there's there's almost a subtle fascistic idolization of the next wave of youth. That the older, the, you know, the, like the the people who are older that that have knowledge of the way the world was, are kind of a threat. Yeah. And so, yep. in the short story, it's made more overt that the fact that Jonathan, in his early life, when he first got married to as he, you know as a star athlete women are given to him so mm-hmm. his wife that was given to him in the early days it was his first love of his life and he was a teenager and it, and it inspired him to per- pursue knowledge essentially and so as he notes in the the short story it was the first time that he feeling a sense of vacancy in, in his life he took up trying to pursue books and during that time and the list of books that he pursues speaks to the individualism that is that that the threat that he represents. So he notes that he read History of the Kings of England. He read The Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. He read what he notes, what he re- describes as the forlorn novels on Rousseau, that being Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the, the philosopher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Specifically, among, among his many works, uh, speaking to this piece, uh, The Social Contract, which is yep. published in the 1700s and speaks to societal inequality. Yeah. So that, yeah. that kind of hints at that side. And then finally, a bio of Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And these are things, these are all works that are the power of the individual mm-hmm. over, mm-hmm. to influence society or yeah. change society. And this yeah. is stuff that, that, though he reads it, he continues being a, a, a cog in the machine. Yeah. But, but he yearns for knowledge. That's, yeah. the, that's his one in, in the, in, his boss Bartholomew's view, his one vice. And I, I want to read you vice. one. Yeah, vice. exactly. I want to read you one more uh, Bartholomew, Bartholomew's opinion on, on this. Yeah. So he's, he's uh, Jonathan's reticent about bringing this to Bartholomew until Bartholomew himself runs in, is, is kind of taken down a peg and is noted that he's no longer going to be the head of energy. So he's now more approachable, but is still of this elective, this this executive class with the knowledge that uh, that comes with it. And he, so when Jonathan brings this this yearning for knowledge to him, he he's, he tells him, "Knowledge, John, either converts to power or it converts to melancholy. Mm. Which could you possibly want? You have power, you have status and skill, you have the whole masculine dream that many of us would like to have. And in rollerball murder, there's no room for melancholy, is there?" In the game, the mind exists for the body to make a harmony of havoc. Do you want to change that? Do you want the mind to exist for itself alone? 
I really want to read this at this point. This really flushes out some of the depth that's that's in uh, in the film that I'm really really captivated by. And just you know what? Also, um, when it came to uh, you know uh, the supercomputer Zero losing the you know entire 13th uh, century, including Dante's Inferno. I mean, I I kept thinking about the the fragility of information, um, you know, as as it becomes digitalized. And I mean, in general, anyways, books can be burned. And but as you know, as it becomes digitalized, what can happen there and just what is lost there, which is just crazy and just, you know, the 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 importance of that knowledge and also how it can be you know, uh, uh, knowledge can be rewritten and used. I mean, it's always known that the victors rewrite history. The leaders, those in power, are the ones telling the story of the past. And these are all all ideas that are, you know, present in a major way in this in this film about uh you know that 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 does have these three big matches. And I mean, we're there for almost the whole big matches uh, you know the first one uh, that starts the one um uh versus madrid uh japan and then the big one in new york to end but it's just it's wild how we're having these like it, it's 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 a multifaceted film and just it's so thought-provoking but then you know if, if you did want to get lost in, in in the action that's there for you too and just credit on that and while i said the word action you know what what's interesting and must be pointing out this is um this is a feat of stunt work as well. I mean, there's no CGI. These are, these people are all on the, on the, um, in the arena and just, just going for it. And, and this was the first film, um, I found out, I did not know this, that the stuntmen were credited for at the end because, uh, and, 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 you know, that obviously should have been done sooner, but I mean, it was they realized uh you know just how important of, of a role they had in in bringing this film to life it could not work as a film unless the uh unless the emphasis in the camera work is put on on uh practical effects and practical stunts in in yeah. kind of almost a handheld way you can't view this from afar and get the same impact Jewison notes that they only that the worst injury that they suffered was uh a broken leg by one of the stuntmen and that he was thankful, uh, shocking, you know, shocked, but thankful that they didn't have any more serious injuries. And I think that speaks to the fact that they, they had, uh, they, they dressed a, a, uh, an arena in Munich that was, uh, where even during their off times, they, it, this came down to the power of practice and the idea that these stuntmen and the actors and the extras, even when they were not shooting, they were, practicing again and again and again and for those who watch this film this is a brutal film this is a i mean those those scenes are brutal but necessary because it brings home it that's one of the great things about it is is that it this those scenes could not i don't think you couldn't have had that in the 1990s or afterwards because they're not they're not cinematic in a way that's you know that there would have been too much of a temptation i think for uh, digital effects um, yeah. compared to the there's something about about the 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 knowledge that these guys are actually hitting against each other and this also speaks you mentioned before about and as we've spoken there's there are several of these scenes that are interspersed throughout the film but each of the progressive games reflects one of the larger uh, arcs which is that this executive class is uh, slowly stripping away rules of the game to make it more brutal 
and more yep. deadly. And I again, I want to go back to the short story. A couple things I picked out, which are expounded upon in, in the in the film. Um, Jonathan notes that that he hears about games in Manila and Barcelona where there are no time limits. This is at the beginning of the story, and mm-hmm. that as he said, men are bashing each other until there's no way of scoring points. So it's less about the game than it is the, than it is about the the aspect of the, that brutality. Um, and then he notes that as the t- story goes along, he says he hears about mixed teams, men and women wearing tearaway jerseys where everything will happen. And he leaves it at that, letting you think, what does everything mean? Does that mean that it's not even about brutality more? It's just about, you know, some sort of sexual, you know, like, like brutalist kind, kind of spectacle. Uh, that he says, they'll change the rules until we skate on a slick of blood. And, they, and we all know that. That the fact that the players know that this is happening, but that's that's just they're just going to keep playing and going along with it because they've been conditioned to go to. It's almost like a fatalism that they're given, and there there are these things. And he, one last note of it, he notes that there's the giant lighted boards that circle above the track, monitor our pace, record each fact of the slaughter, and we have millions of fans. It's always seemed strange to me who never look. It says, we have millions of fans, it's always seems strange to me, who never look directly at the action, but just study those statistics. And the fact that they are, how much does that resonate today? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, but yeah, as fantasy football and fantasy sports grow in fame, that's exactly what they're looking at. They're just the stats, the numbers matter. The person behind it matters less and less all the time. You know, you know a game is super, super violent when... On the scoreboard, they have symbols that that show when someone dies. You yeah. know, they have that 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 kind of like white light blinking away to the red light. <laughs> so they're just showing on on that you know scoreboard that people are dying. I'm curious. Um, and one 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 and one more thing on that ahead. because you just Please. brought you brought this up with fantasy football. In the short story, he notes he notes that that they've implemented bigger bonuses for hits and shortening their two month off season because the viewers want more. And when it comes to football, an infamous an infamous chapter, a recurring chapter in the last 20 years of, of the NFL was what was known as Bounty Gate, where there was internally coaches that would give bonuses to players um, to take out a quarterback or to take out a star player on the opposing team. And the idea that, that the players union in, in, um, in the NFL and other sports perpetually are a, a core part of that is how much off season they they are granted and not having to hit each other or do workouts or or the idea of practices beer because they're humans they're they're not they're not to you know that that they need that rest to come back and play at their fullest form re- regardless of what the viewers want yeah there's been talks you know owners and you know even the league was exploring ideas of of more games more season and the players union looking out for their players and just the players speaking out in general <laughs> we're saying this is this absurd i mean it's such a dangerous game as it is and you're going to want more of that you're just going to have more injuries and more people breaking down by the end of it it's it's really wild i'm curious because because i don't know at all do you know how this film was received when it came out in 1975 did it do really well how was the perception of it in general critically speaking or or by the people critically speaking it was it did well in europe not so well in the u.s um the u.s unsurprisingly they focused on the brutality of the sports scenes and in europe the uh, critics focused on the um political commentary Mm. it did not necessarily 
hurt Jewison's career. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, it was a risk for him. It wasn't a... Um, it, it wasn't a blockbuster at all for for him. And, you know, I think it only earned about $6 million um, at the box office in, in, in $75. 75, um, you know, value. Um, against something like a $30 million budget. So it is essentially, mm. quote-unquote, you know, didn't do well. But I'm not sure what the, what the international box office is, but I can't imagine it's much more than that. So yeah. it didn't, you know, it's... In the long run, it's it. If that's going to be a failure, I think that's one that whose, who, quote unquote, failure. It's one whose reputation has grown over the years, so that it's not something mm-hmm. that has harmed his legacy. Um, it's just you know, there's a lot going on here in terms of ideas, but it's in terms of the construction of the film. I I think it's it's actually an interesting commercial pitch, where you're saying mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of lull you in with with the sports aspects of it while we work in the social commentary stuff of it and there is a lot of various social commentary including the role of women and the idea that that the they this is almost like a margaret atwood-ish uh world yeah. where women yeah. great point uh, at, at least in this, this class yeah yes we don't see oh, much yeah. of the wider world beyond this insulated kind of executive sports class but there it's essentially professional prostitution that's controlled yep. by by these corporations. Um, the other thing is uh, the idea of end of life, and when um, uh, uh, Jonathan's teammate Moonpie uh, gets horrifically injured and basically is in in a, in a match and is brain dead, um, he yep. is pressured into since this, since Moonpie does not have any extended family, he's pressured into signing off on his death. And he declines. Jonathan declines because he's told that this that it's a matter of paperwork, no more. And he's described. He's told that that Mupai is now a vegetable. And it's yep. an, an interesting thing. Khan, as as um, Jonathan, kind of is is kind of meditative about it for a moment, and says, "Well, yeah. even a plant, you know, faces, to, you know, uh, looks to find the sun." Wilts. Yeah, yeah. And the idea that. You know, there's in terms of does he have knowledge, some kind of prime primordial, basic knowledge of life, like does life need to go on for its own sake, or does it need to have you know the idea of its self knowledge of the individual, you know this yeah. kind of stuff. It's asking that that kind of stuff in in a subtle way, but also not so subtle. You know, it's mm-hmm. the idea of whether or not to pull the plug on a, on a on a beloved teammate. And what constitutes, you know, a quality life when you're a quote-unquote vegetable? That's stuff that a lot of other films we're not asking. And it's certainly yeah. not dumb action films. And, and that kind Definitely. of stuff is, is throughout this film. And I think, it, again, it speaks to the... Uh, you can see that throughout the filmography of Norman Jewison. You know, he's an yeah. v- extremely thoughtful, philosophical filmmaker, regardless of the budget that he's given. Or, the, or you know, the prop, you know, a lot of the stuff that he directed, or a lot of his most well-known stuff that he's directed, is based on previous properties. Whether that's Fiddler on the Roof or Jesus Christ Superstar in terms of stage play stuff, or development of a short story like this, you know, these mm-hmm. are th- that that kind of stuff made him has defined his career and is what brought him later in his career to being considered as director for, for Malcolm X. 
which eventually was directed by Spike Lee. Spike Lee, yeah. Um, that was changed because it was because of heavy pressure that that biopic should be directed by a black director. Uh, ultimately, yeah. I mean, there's there's a whole long story to that, that. but but at the end of the day, that's basically what it boils down to. But it was not. If you look back at films like this, and the questions that films like this are asking about about society and where it's headed, it's not that shocking. And again, this is a guy who directed In the Heat of the Night, which is mm -hmm. kind of a, for the late '60s was a very um, thought-provoking and and um, progressive film about race in the South. Absolutely, um, it's crucial. Yeah. very important. It's not shocking yeah. that he'd be considered for films like that. The, at, considering you know his filmography and i would argue that this is his most transgressive film yeah yeah which makes sense and it's it's wild and it just it's that's why i was so excited to talk about and shine a light on this film and think thinking about all we just laid out in this film i mean the the real and ongoing um corporation power grab happening throughout the world the power of knowledge and whose hands it lies in the ills of blood sport the, uh, the disenfranchisement and prostitution of women and just these are just these weighty, weighty, important, ongoing and just critical themes that 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 he's, you know, bringing to light and, and talking about in 1975. He's just it's just awesome in that way. And he, he was envisioning a future. I think this film was supposed to uh, the action takes place in 2018 and kind of kind of hitting the mark <laughs> in a lot of ways right or right around this time period i mean that's a lot to chew on in a film and he does it with grace and in in a way that's that's a lot of fun to watch too um i can think of the the, the music uh the, the the use of bach to close and start was something that really took me in is there anything else in this film and i know we've we've pointed out a, out a heck of a lot but is there anything else in the film that we would be, um, you know, uh, it'd be a shame not to mention as we close down here. No, you know, I think I think we've covered a, a wide a wide scope of yeah, it. But sure I, I, you <laughs> make me think though when you say music. You know, one of the things that might be a barrier for some people to make it through this film or to pick it up is is that there are aspects of it that at first glance seem very dated. Um, there is yeah. there is the classical music yep. actually seems among its score seems the least dated. It's I think it, it's the mm. music that works the best because it reflects this this um, this high society um, world. But it's co yeah. it's kind of sits side by side with this electric synth boogie seventies <laughs> wide lapel kind of stuff as well during their their totally. stuff. And I was sitting there watching again, which is what gives me a lot of Kubrick vibes too, because he he balances that line really well in all his films. Yeah, and I I think that it, it it kind of leads into something about that society world, the idea of corporations. There's there's a, there's one more aspect to this film which we haven't discussed, which again Please. is played out during uh, a viewing party for uh, John uh, Jonathan E. Essentially, what is a Jonathan E. supercut of his career? All these high society. Uh, executives the executive class and their their wife wife slash girlfriends gather at this this estate house to um watch this stuff and uh, as as the party goes from night into morning and uh drugs and and um and liquor are consumed they a group of them grab a a gun that's a that's kind of a relic from these corporate oh, yes. wars and they go out onto this this long this manicured grassy lawn now you, before 
there's we're not really given much knowledge about the uh, state of the environment in this version of Earth, but the short story makes it clear it ain't good, and that the idea <laughs> that you know the the trees and greenery and nature it's something for you know even that is something that's that's for the the, the few. Um, the elite, so to speak, and so this this drunken group with this gun go out to this lawn, and there are these these what look like cypress trees, I guess, along this this ridge, and they kind of drunkenly shoot this this gun that fires exploding rounds at the at these trees that go up in flame, one by one, down down the line there, and that's kind of the the uh, the view that the corporate that the, the corp these corporations don't give a shit about nature and don't give a shit about Absolutely. the environment or the impact haphazardly of blowing up the, those two i think they might be spruces but uh haphazardly blowing them up gleefully blowing them up it was well, it was very surreal scene and visually just just uh, captivating but odd what a, i'm glad you brought that up that's i you know and i didn't think about it the recklessness um environmentally speaking uh that that you're speaking of absolutely that's a good point and again that speaks to you know the for this this group of of this executive class that claims that they represent the you know that the there's no room for the individual it's all about the team well the environment our place our planet that is the ultimate you know team you know that's the we have to you know preserve it and that you know, after a night of of, of drinking and, and just to kind of flippantly destroy it because they can, yeah. says, speaks to the mentality that of this of this this uh, world. Think, absolutely. All right. Well, yeah, I think you you uh, you put a button on it with that one, bringing it all home. So, uh, Christian, thank you. This is uh, I know this was your idea to bring this film. I'm I I hadn't seen it prior to this and. I dove deep in and I loved every minute. So thank you. And thanks for the time talking about it here today. Hey, thank you, Michael. And if anyone uh, who's listening to this today would like to um, listen to the short story, Harrison's short story that it was based on, I, I highly recommend um, a website. Uh, if you look up Mindwebs, um, it's basically, it was, it was the uh, creation of a guy named Michael Hansen, who is a longtime mm -hmm. radio personality, great voice, who, um, as part of his syndicated show series would read short stories. And this was early on in the series. I think it was maybe the seventh uh, one that he read, um, but it's very evocative. And so if you can seek it out, Mindweb's uh, Rollerball Murder by William Harrison, it's, it's a great listen for those that can't necessarily find the original Esquire article. And uh, just the quotes you uh, provided from the book in uh in this episode make me I, I need to read it need to listen to it so thank you thank you for that and thank you everybody out there for once again join the party This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.